When, so what was the final straw for you having to, when you knew you had to leave California? Um, after watching the level of injury from the shots in my patient population, uh, my husband and I had been invested in real estate. Um, we had two rental properties and they were both multiplexes. Mm. So, um, I was very concerned for my financial investment properties and uh, we, we, you know, I was seeing such a high admissions rate in the hospital. And so that was straight from the lips of my manager. Um, I mean, I noticed that we had had increased admissions. I noticed uh, my staffing department had been calling me over and over and over again, um, uh, you know, on a daily basis. Like in the winter months, so after being a nurse, you know, in the hospital setting, you really get familiar with the trends of the hospital. The trends of the hospital are that, you know, night shifts are quiet. You can do mm -hmm. a lot of charting and take care of a lot of the paperwork. Day shifts are crazy and busy and there's always family there and there's it's hectic. And, you you know, everyone and their mother is coming to see patients and, you know, physical therapy and all of it. The other trends, the other trends, the one that in particular that has relationship to COVID is that, um, you know, hospitals are full during the winter months. Every winter, a hospital fills up at least once, usually twice. Um, and that no, I, was, I never knew it was seasonal that way. It's absolutely seasonal. And in the summer months, the hospitals are generally dead and empty. And so, um, when the shots uh, came out in my community, I didn't really notice it until um, ab about June, but starting in, in about March, which was within a few weeks of the rollout of the um, COVID shots to the public, my staffing department started calling me four times a day to come to work. That had never happened. I would get two, sometimes three calls a day. I had never gotten four calls a day every single day to come to work and it didn't stop it went on and on and on and so in june when i um when i was there because i was in grad school so i was doing a lot of um cyclical work at the hospital i uh, worked a position called per diem mm. which means that i can pretty much write my own schedule mm. so since i was in grad school um, i would often just take myself off when i was studying and then um, I, it was a quarter system. So the three weeks that we were off in between each quarter, I would go and work doubles. So I would just work nonstop. And so uh, I doubles was meaning double shifts. Mm -hmm. Yep. So I would go in. We did eight hour shifts at my hospital. Uh, so that would be days, PMs and nights. And uh, I would, you know, often I would I would work the PMs and nights, but sometimes I would work days and PMs. Um, but there were several things that really profoundly like impacted my urgency to leave the the state of California. Um, but and one of them was what I saw happening to my community members after the rollout of those shots because it was just devastating. Um, in my grad school, one of the projects I did was to um, assess uh, community statistics. 
And so part of that project, I determined that uh, we had um, in Sonoma County, we had one of the highest elderly populations in the country. And I think that that's really relevant with these COVID-19 shots, because in addition, so having a high elderly population, we have a high um, percentage of a population with, with multiple comorbidities. Right. Underlying conditions. In addition to that, they're more fragile just because of their elderly status. Um, and then uh, and then to top it off, the cherry on the top here is that we had one of the most compliant populations in the country. Yeah. So everyone ran out to get those shots as soon as they became available, um, which which is, again, you know, it, it, it was very clear to anyone who was paying attention that, you know, if your staffing department's calling you four times a day, it's directly associated with the onset of these shots. In addition to that, um, I started hearing um, about, on average, about an eight to tenfold increase in code blues. Uh, per, so uh, in the hospital, uh, code blues call when a patient either stops breathing or their heart stops. And what it, what it does is there's a comm system in the hospital and says, you know, ding, 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 code blue, oh, second gosh. level, room 256, emergency staff, please report. And so it gets everyone directed directly to the incident where that person is in urgent distress. Mm. And when these code blues started after the rollout of these shots, on the day shift and half of the PM shift, I started noticing that there was a, about a tenfold increase in code blues. And in addition to that, instead of being called to a patient's room, uh, so the staff was being called to the lower level of the hospital, which is where we're, we had a um, COVID-19 vaccine clinic. So uh, there was, uh, so on a normal shift, I would, generally hear about one code blue per shift as a nurse. Mm. I would say probably less than that. One per shift is generous. It was probably more like potentially one to two per day. Mm. So they were very, very, very rare. And when we opened that clinic in the basement of the hospital, I was hearing anywhere from six, eight, 10, 12 code blues per day. So that's a huge number. It was huge. It was huge. And, um, and then I had, uh, when I brought that up to a colleague of mine, uh, who worked at a different facility, same company, Kaiser Permanente, Mm. uh, she also, uh, actually worked, uh, on the COVID vaccination clinic she was administering these shots to people and she concurred that she was witnessing um eight to 12 episodes of anaphylactic shock per day so uh did you did you raise these concerns with a with a supervisor with a manager Yes, we did. Uh, so my colleague in particular who was administering the shots and witnessing the code blues firsthand, she actually brought it up specifically to her manager uh, and they told her that if she reported the adverse events, she would be fired. And unfortunately, that was the climate throughout the hospital 
we were all being discouraged or downright forbidden to report the injuries that we were seeing. For instance, um, the shots uh, in my career, I've been a hospital-based acute care nurse for my entire career, 10 years. And during that time, I had seen two patients come into the hospital with Guillain-Barre. It's a muscular autoimmune disorder that causes you to lose function um, of your, usually your legs, you lose the ability to walk. Um, But uh, two, two cases in my career. Within how long, how long was that at this point? How long was your career at this point? That was eight years. So not an insignificant amount of time. I'd been a nurse for eight years and I'd been working in acute care the whole time. Two patients, eight years. Within two weeks of the rollout of the COVID shots in my community, I'd seen four patients with Guillain-Barre. And two of them, I got the opportunity to ask them what had happened and they both, two of those four, I didn't get the opportunity to ask the other two, mm. but the two that I was able to ask, they both reported to me that they had received a COVID-19 injection within 48 hours of their symptom onset. Wow. So that was actually the point when I approached the doctor um, on that on those cases, and I reported that to them and asked them about reporting. And their response to me was incessant always the same. We cannot prove that these injuries are being caused by the COVID vaccines, so we will not be reporting them. So that's a complete violation of the um, vaccine safety laws that we have in place, because my license requires me to um, report any potential side effect. It's not my job to determine whether or not it's provable. It's my job to determine that there is a possibility that there might be a warning signal coming off of these experimental use products that needs to be evaluated, right? I think that is such an important point. So so it's not your job to be able to prove conclusively that A caused B. You just have to kind of call out a reasonable correlation between those two things. That's correct. So so you brought that up and your managers told you that we can't prove it, so we can't report it. They They explicitly prohibit you from reporting it? Well, yes. So um, not me specifically, but I had my, my direct, one of my colleagues, I, you know, she was another nurse that worked for Kaiser Permanente. And she was specifically told, if you report these incidences, you will be fired. Wow. So um we were being, you know, threatened. And I know people who were fired over it. I know other nurses who were fired over reporting um, the side effects from these shots. So it's a real, it was a real concern. 
You so tell us about Kaiser Permanente for a moment. From what I understand, they're one of the biggest hospital systems in the country. They are, yeah. So they have um, a fully inclusive um, medical care system. So what they do is unique in that it offers people primary care, physicians, insurance, all the labs, all the pharmaceuticals, um, any other outpatient care. Um, it's like a fully like inclusive uh, medical um, treatment system. And, you know, their mo their motto is, it has something to do with wellness, which makes me laugh every time I think about it, because it's just so inaccurate after you really get down into what they're doing. So uh, Kaiser Permanente, I don't remember exactly the year that they started. I know that my facility opened in 1991. I think that the organization started in the 80s, perhaps the late 70s. Hmm. They're not that old of an organization, but their model of care is, you know, a one-stop shop. Hmm. And, uh, and in addition to that, they have... Um, so this is like the poster child for big medicine kind of thing. Yes, that's exactly correct. And in addition to that, they also have a massive research arm called the Kaiser Family Foundation. Right. And they provide extensive bodies of data and research to um, organizations like the CDC. This is one of the main reasons why I, I was so concerned when I um, saw that they were falsely documenting COVID patients in the hospital. How so? So uh, when the vaccines rolled out to the public, um, they populated a new chart for us as medical staff to document in. So they use something called the Epic charting system. Mm. And we, you know, go into the computer and we, take notes on our patients and then those notes can be shared between um, you know all the practitioners who are caring for that patient but they also gather data and um, the COVID chart when we had a patient who was diagnosed with COVID Epic updated our system after the vaccines rolled out so that every single COVID positive patient their chart populated with a big red banner across the top that said unvaccinated. And then they didn't teach staff how to change the settings. Wait, so, it automatically defaulted to unvaccinated? Yes. Did they, did they base that on any information from the patient directly? No. It, the charts were defaulted to unvaccinated. So do you remember when the media was going hog wild about how all of the hospitalized patients were unvaccinated? The pandemic of the of the un, of the unvaccinated, right? That was never true. I worked the covid floors. I worked on units that were partnered with ICUs. There was never a point from rollout of those vaccines that our COVID positive patients were primarily unvaccinated. Are you aware of any instances where patients were in fact vaccinated 
and were at the hospital and their chart read as unvaccinated? Oh, hundreds. I mean, that's just the norm. So what would happen was that we couldn't alter the chart to correct that bread banner, which is where, right? So that banner is the, um, that's like the tally point for the people who analyze the data, you know, that's what they look at. So what we would do as staff members is we would go into the notes section in the chart and we would just write a note, this patient is fully vaccinated. But the notes don't tally data. Right. It's notes that are there for staff members to pass information to each other. So the actual data section of the chart was fraudulently informing, um, you know, the the statisticians that everyone in the hospital was unvaccinated when that was never the case. This is false data. This is this is literally I've got the story straight. Don't bother me with the facts. That is what was occurring. So and I just heard about a paper that um, came out last year analyzing um, the charts in a couple of uh, central states. I think it was Missouri and and Kansas. And uh, they showed that um, 44% of the patients who were uh, admitted to the hospitals were uh, falsely documented as being unvaccinated when they were fully vaccinated. Um, and, And in my experience, that could have been the case in the first one to two months of the rollout of the shots. Mm. But uh, by about by the time I was I was fired uh, in October of 21, uh, a majority of our patients were fully vaccinated and diagnosed with COVID. So, it was you know, um, part of the reason I cover stories like this and I try very hard to get amazing people like you on the show is because in the back of my mind, years and years from now, when my children or my grandchildren, if I'm lucky enough to to see them, when they ask me about this crazy time that they're reading about in history books, mm-hmm. um, and they ask, you know, what did you do during that time? This is kind of romanticized, but I want I want to be able to have a good answer to that question. Or at least not a terrible answer. I don't want to say, well, I didn't do much of anything. I want to be able to have a satisfactory answer. It seems to me, Gail, that you're going to have some some pretty decent answers to that to that question when you're asked about it. Um, you mentioned a second ago that you were fired. Tell us about the circumstances surrounding that. Uh, well, um, I set myself up for that. <laughs> I intend to be fired because I was so angry. Uh, so I... Um, so in June of 2021, uh, so that was about three months after the rollout of the shots in my community, mm. uh, my manager approached me. So a few things happened during that three-week period of time. It was mm. uh, the end of June and into the first week of July mm. of 2021, and I was working doubles nonstop. I was mm. working basically 17 hours a day. Um, and know, this is because your hospital was slammed at that time. During the summer, during the summer months, during the summer, the hospital was slammed. I had never. So in addition to me having 10 years of experience, my mom was a nurse for 45 years before me. And okay. she, between the two of us, we've got 55 years of hospital-based medicine. Okay. 
neither one of us had ever seen hospitals consistently filled with patients to the point where we could not staff the hospital appropriately for months on end. Wow. It had never even happened in the winter, you know, spikes come and go. So, you know, the hospital, like in the winter months, you know, it might be full for two months. That would be unusual. This was at the, at that point, it started in March and, and, and there's evidence of this. So I'll get to it. It started mm-hmm. in March. It was still June now. And the hospital was, I was still getting two to three phone calls a day from the staffing department to come into work. And every time I go in, I'd be working doubles. Mm. So I was there working doubles. Um, so one day, I think it was around the 23rd of June, um, one of my managers approached me and he looked at me, the guy, the poor guy, he was um, sweating clearly. You know, he probably hadn't had a day off since um, since February or March. Oh. Uh, he looked, he and and I, I, I got the sense from him that he was just so beside himself that he didn't know what to make of what he was seeing. Yeah. He came to me at the nursing station and he said, Gail, this hospital has had three times more patient admissions than we've ever had since the hospital opened their doors. Wow. So, and he got that from the data. So the management of the hospital has access to the data, to the statistical data of, you know, the norms at the hospital. So he got that directly from the data that the hospital was was getting that we had had a threefold increase in hospitalizations and it directly was associated with the onset of the uptake of the COVID-19 vaccines in this community, right? Where we have a high incidence of of elderly, high comorbidities, very high compliance rate. So if there's any place in the country where you want to really get an accurate representation of how safe these shots were, it was pretty much the best community to to go to for that information. That is such a great point. So, So that happened. And then within about three days of that experience, when he approached me and told me that, I just. So again, this is, this is June 21. Mm -hmm. Okay. June 21. I just happened to have um, decided to work a double on this shift a few days after my manager had approached me and told me that. And uh, I was working this because this um, in the position because I was per diem, right? I would fill Mm. in. So I go all over the hospital and just work where I was needed. So I was working a double. You're kind of like a floater. Yep, I was. I was working a double. I so on that day, I worked as a patient care coordinator to PCT, where like uh, assistant to the nurses. Okay. I worked uh, on two units, and I worked as a PCT on both units. That means that I got report on about sixty patients in that day, right? So normally a nurse goes to work and we take a patient load and we've got, you know, five patients. And that's the only people we get report on. As a PCT, as a patient care coordinator, you get report on a whole bunch of patients. I got report. For folks who don't know, when you say I get report, what kind of facts are are there? Right. So report uh, usually lasts about a half an hour. It occurs at the beginning of every shift. Hmm. And what happens is, 
that's when uh, the medical staff pass patients from one set of staff to the next. Okay. So I'll get information. Um, if I'm the primary nurse, I'll get a lot of information. If I'm the break nurse or the PCT, the patient care coordinator, I'll get a more condensed version. But um, so usually what we would get in that role, we would get their primary diagnosis, the reason for admission, the date of admission, um, you know, if they're on any drips, uh, what their ambulation status is, like, are they safe to get up and move around? Um, you know, what they're eating, what their code status is, um, you know, if they have any allergies, just really like safety information. It sounds the- like everything you would need to know about a particular patient. Yeah, it's basically a condensed version of everything you need to know about a patient. Mm. And as a nurse, because I'm a nurse, right, I would always really deeply understand, especially the more technical aspects of, you know, the diagnosis, like, well, so we would get that report on what the diagnosis was. And I would often just ask questions, because, you know, if there's a safety concern, I have to be aware of exactly, you know, what I'm dealing with. So I would try and get more details. But on that shift, when I worked as a PCT on two separate units and got full report, you know, on 50 patients, roughly 50 patients, I went home from that shift knowing. So before I was concerned about the safety of the COVID vaccines, and I was concerned about what my managers had said. But I think it was like you had said in the beginning, you know, it's like, it's really hard to wrap your head around what you're seeing. Yeah. Even as an expert, you know, like I was seeing this stuff happen and I was like this, I was like a fish out of water. I was like, it's surreal. uh, Like, uh, you know, like, what do you do when you see it? And I think part of it, too, is that as a professional, you know, we go through all this training and we just think that, you know, the professional world, everyone is going to behave professionally and we're all going to exercise critical thinking and apply best judgment and um, uphold our ethics and our oath. You know, like those are things that I expected from my colleagues. And when I when I was in the middle of it, And I was forced to reconcile with the fact that that was not happening. And um, I would say the best example of that was the fact that practitioners allowed the administrators to tell us that we needed to isolate our patients. Yeah. Families. Yeah. That's criminal. Yeah. There is an extensive body of research that shows that when you isolate a patient, you increase their likelihood of death and you increase their potential for severe um, bad outcomes from disease. And if you just think about it, right, we isolate people in prison as torture. Right. So why would we isolate our patients to torture them? No, it it, it feels like everything that was done during this pandemic, this quote unquote pandemic was the exact opposite of decades and decades and decades of best practice in medicine. Absolutely. I absolutely agree with that. It was completely backwards. So back to this story about the PCT. So I got a report on 50 patients and every single one of them was there with some obscure clotting disorder, 
that I'd never heard of. I mean, I'd worked as a cardiac nurse on an open heart cardiac floor. I'd, I'd been doing telemetry. So the, my point is, is that I was an expert nurse when it comes to blood clotting disorders, strokes, heart attacks. Hmm. I spent five years managing patients in these conditions. And I was, and on that day, when I got report on 50 of those patients, roughly 14 to 17 of them had some kind of clotting disorder that I had never heard of. Like the most obscure things. So it was all clotting disorders, um, strokes, a lot of young people, two patients with Guillain-Barre. That was the day that I had those two patients with Guillain-Barre. Are you familiar with that disease? I am, yes. I mean, I just know, but I don't have any firsthand experience with it. Yeah, so um, in addition to that, um, rapid onset dementias, which were extremely unusual. Wow. Um, uh, and and so at the end of that shift, I actually went, I went over to, uh, my whole family was gathering that day and my mom just happened to be there. And I sat down with her and I looked at her and I said, mom, I just got report on 50 patients and they're all, they all look to me like they have vaccine injuries and we can't report them. Mm-hmm. The majority of those patients, I'd actually asked them and they had mentioned that they had just gotten a COVID-19 vaccine. So uh, that was kind of the tipping point for me. And uh, I, at that, that was, that was the end of the line. Uh, so at that point, that was in July, I contacted um, some, uh, uh, some lawyers that I knew, and some friends of mine, um, I went to the city council of Sonoma County, and I reported to them what I was seeing in the hospital uh, to try and assuade them from mandating COVID shots. Um, I started publicly speaking out in my community. I went to a few events and spoke about what was happening. Uh, and and my hospital was just, uh, you know, completely unconcerned. And, you know, they were still just going right along with their agenda to get all of the staff members vaccinated. And um, so they rolled out a mandate to the staff that um, right around that time, it was the end of July, early August. And, but I'd already been formulating legal documents because I'd seen the writing on the walls and I'd already witnessed what was happening. And um, so I, um, I formed a whole packet of legal documents And uh, I had them served to my employer um, in the middle of September. And then two days later, they put me on administrative leave. And since I refused to comply, they were, um, they terminated me on the 1st of October. Wow. What a hero. What, so what happens after that? What happens immediately after that? Uh, well, I had been foreseeing that this was going to happen. I wasn't going to bend. Um, I wasn't at all interested in compromising. I had, I'd felt like I had already compromised too much. Um, because in it, so, you know, there were many, many, many things that took place during that year. There was, 
uh, all of the censorship of the staff members who were saying, well, wait a minute, you know, the hospitals are empty. Why is the media saying we're full? <laughs> you know, that year of 2020. Right. When this right. all begun. And the hospital ships that would pull up to, you know, to the bay next to big cities and in, in, in New York, they had tents set up in Central Park and this was going to be apocalyptic almost. There was nothing. It was a complete bust. And um, and then we had to uh, go along with the COVID protocols. The COVID protocols were criminal. So this is really important. Mm. People who say that their loved ones died from COVID, mm. that is not true. Their loved ones died from medical malpractice. And I'm mm. going to tell you how, all right? So they come to the hospital with COVID. They're short of breath. They're having a hard time breathing. They're anxious. Um, they're stressed out. And then we separate them from their support system. Yeah. So with a low oxygenation status, their mental state might not really be all there. So we're separating them from their advocates and their support system. And their anxiety levels, of course, go way up. Right. And then we start the COVID protocols. Now, the COVID protocols were rolled out to us to every hospital in the country by the CDC. And it was a set of uh, parameters that hospitals had to follow in order to get monetary reimbursement for right. providing care to patients who had COVID. I was going to ask you if you had any experience with those incentives. Okay. So the protocols were this. And if the hospitals didn't do it, they don't get the money. And since the hospitals were completely dead during 2020, that was the slowest year that I've ever seen the hospitals in my entire career as a nurse. Well, they shut people out. You couldn't go there unless you had COVID. That's correct. Well, you couldn't, they canceled elective surgeries. Right. Yeah. So, you you know, we still had patients coming in, but all the elective surgeries were canceled. Yeah. Right. Right. So, um, so you come to the hospital with COVID you're having a hard time breathing. Your anxiety level is sky high because of what the media has been telling us about how dangerous COVID is. And this is this is really something. And and I actually speculate because I talk I talked to Pierre Corey about this because he said that actually in New York the hospitals were actually very full. I've talked to some nurses about it, and they have told me that the hospitals were never full. I wonder if Pierre Corey maybe just um, that wasn't his hometown and he wasn't necessarily familiar with the ebbs and flows of the hospital. You don't I'm have really the history, sure. right, right. Really not sure. But the nurses that I know who lived there and worked there also said that they weren't really any fuller than they ever were. Mm. And in addition to that, uh, they speculated that a majority of the patients who were coming in were actually coming in over anxiety-related disorders because mm. of the mongering that was being put forth by the media. Mm. So they come in extremely anxious, short of breath. COVID is a real thing. And I'm I'm going to get into that. Okay. Whatever it is, whether it's a naturally occurring disease, which I do not think it is, right. uh, or a or an engineered virus, which or an engineered pathogen of some sorts, which is what I speculated is it's some kind of engineered patented. We have the patents. So that's one thing. It's part of the evidence that I'm using in some of the legal work I'm doing. Wow, um, okay. But 
so they would come in, they would get diagnosed with COVID, they're short of breath, and right away, we would isolate them from their families and their support system. That's torture. So right. we start out right out the gate torturing people. Yeah. I had very serious reservations about doing that. I voiced my concerns to the management. They told me that we had no choice because it was COVID protocol and that we were trying to protect the staff. I disagree with that analysis because at that point, by April of 2020, we had gotten data from Stanford proving that the fatality rate for COVID was less than 1%. Right. So, comparable to influenza. So we actually had zero evidence to isolate people from their families. We had what the media was saying, but it was not true. Mm. So we were torturing them by isolation. Here's the next thing. So the hospitals were not allowed to administer respiratory treatments to patients with COVID. Now, such as in what realm, albuterol more, most specifically, which is our number one mode of treatment for a patient whose lungs have closed. We give them albuterol, the lungs open up and they can breathe again. So how is it? You were prohibited from using that? We're prohibited from using it. We were prohibited from using any kind of nebulization, aerosolized uh, respiratory treatment, which, which. So prior to COVID, this is, this is the, the method of treatment that you would apply absolutely. to someone. Absolutely. And, and, and so withholding it. So, and they did the same thing that they did with isolation. They said, oh, well, um, we're going to isolate these people from their families because it's what's best for the staff. They said the same thing with the lack of respiratory treatments. They said, well, we don't want to risk releasing aerosolized particles into the air um, and potentially making other people sick. But the fact of the matter is, is that we had been treating respiratory infectious diseases for our entire careers. And if you didn't want to be in medicine, potentially taking those risks. I mean, I was exposed to albuterol for people who had influenza, the seasonal flu every year, all year long, all mm. winter long. I mean, it was this, this is the standard protocol. It's like you said, this is the standard protocol, even with influenza. You know, if somebody is short of breath, you give them a nebulization treatment. That is what stops them from going into respiratory arrest and needing to be ventilated. So they pulled away our best weapon to prevent ventilation. Then here's the next thing that they did, which is our next, if not tied for best option to prevent ventilation. So COVID-19 was the most inflammatory disease process yes. that we've ever seen. Yes. We had more, so there's a lab value called CRP, C-reactive mm -hmm. protein, and it caused such extraordinary elevations in patient CRP levels that um, it was causing cytokine storm. Cytokine, right, right. right. People we, we... going to septic shock and cytokine storm because their inflammation was so high that the body could not respond. And what did the CDC do? They told us that we could not administer steroids. 
They gave us these stupid little like 20 mill five milligram doses of solumedrol, which is not the right steroid in the first place. Mm. We needed to be giving them heavy duty, intense steroid therapies to bring down the systemic inflammation and prevent these patients from going into cytokine storm. So we were shooting ourselves in the foot in three of the biggest ways that you can imagine. And I haven't even started with remdesivir. That <laughs> medication was poison. Mm. The staff knew it. Within two months of the rollout of remdesivir in our patient population, the nurses would just sit around the nurse's station and say, why are we giving this medication? It is not helping. You and your colleagues would discuss this openly. Yes. In 2020, we were openly acknowledging not only, and I brought this up over and over again to my colleagues, not only were we aware that it was not helping, remdesivir is an antiviral. It is well established in medicine that an antiviral is contraindicated. It should not be given if a patient is more than three days post-symptom onset. Do you know how many days post-symptom onset it was that 99% of COVID patients showed up at the hospital? Mm. Six to 10. A minimum of six days post-symptom onset, usually 10. Because do you remember the advice of the CDC and the media? They were saying, if you if you get diagnosed with COVID, just go home and lock go yourself home. in the room. Right. Don't anything just go home don't do anything and don't come to the hospital until you're blue right right so by the time um you know by the time they'd gone through the full disease process of covid and that cytokine that inflammation the crp levels went up and up and up and up because we weren't doing any early treatment and then they present to the hospital it was so far beyond the therapeutic range to administer an antiviral that we were literally poisoning people. It made no sense whatsoever. And I would bring it up to my colleagues and it was just, oh, mm-hmm. it's the COVID protocol. Well, so I, so it strikes me that there's two, there's two possibilities here surrounding your story. Number one, that you're making this all up. This, this is all a bold-faced lie. Number two is that you have, as you just outlined, many, many colleagues who acknowledged what you were seeing and knew that it was wrong and just decided that they didn't want to rock the boat. I don't believe the former to be true. I believe the latter to be true because as you just outlined, you've lost your job. You've paid a price. You, there, there's more to lose by, by speaking out than there is to gain. Yeah, there's a lot to it. I've had a lot of time to think about what all happened because, you know, when I was in the middle of all this, I really just, I had no idea that there were so few people like me who were willing to rock the boat. Mm. And it's actually the reason why I'm living in RV and traveling with my children because what I have really come to understand about why me, why did I do this and no one else did? I know for a fact that important question, yeah. Of my colleagues knew what was going on, yeah. and 
Most of them chose not to speak up because they were afraid. They were afraid of going against the agenda. They were afraid of losing their jobs. And they suspected that they could have trusted the people that were giving them advice. So a little bit about my background. I was homeschooled. Mm. And um, I never really thought that that mattered. Uh, but during COVID, what I realized was well, this that- is this is why you, this is why you have the ability to think critically, allow me to say. Yeah, well, and it's not just that. It's also that COVID in the hospital really, really reminded me of high school. Because what I saw happening was that my colleagues were so much more concerned with fitting in Mm. and being um, socially accepted that they chose to turn a blind eye to the truth and not Mm. to critically analyze what they were seeing. And with me, right, I was... I went through high school and really what that did for me is it forced me to, instead of handing my value and self-worth off to the acceptance of my peers, I had to find that within myself because I didn't have any peers to hand that to. So my value and my self-worth, right? So all these things about your, you know, emotional uh, security around, you know, what, who you are in the world. Those things are really um, public, the public institutions really thrive on, you know, making us feel that, you know, those are the essential core factors of what it means to be human is to be accepted into that group and to be just like everyone else. And, you know, they, it, I remember in high school, that it was very difficult to develop that sense of self. Mm. It was not easy. It was trials and tribulations of me having to figure out and acknowledge that I'm just fine. And it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks of me and who accepts me or doesn't accept me. And I don't think that a lot of people go through those experiences because of the whole group think education. And so when I was in that position in the hospital as an adult, and I was being put in that place where I was being forced to stand up to the norms and the peer groups that were around me in the hospital, I mean, I didn't think twice about it because I already knew, you know, that my own self-worth and value had nothing to do with what anyone else thought of me. Yeah. I have to live with myself. And at the end of the day, that's really what brought me forward. And it's also what has helped me make that decision to try and give my kids some experiences that will really challenge their own um, sense of value and self-worth. Uh, traveling, you know, constantly being in new places. Like I'm, I'm teaching them to be very resilient, very flexible. Yes. Yes. Things that you can't really get when you, 
These are the true life skills. This is what you need to get by in life. You don't need to know how to stand in line for at the cafeteria or, or line up for, you know, do push-ups in gym class. That stuff is important, but this is what you really need to make it through life. Yeah, it, the older I get, the more I just feel so grateful that I was homeschooled. And it was hard, you know, it was hard being that homeschooled teenager and that homeschooled young adult because, you know, I was different. But um, the older I get, the more I'm just so profoundly thankful for it because I learned skills that have just helped me uh what it really is, is it's helped me be a happier person because at the end of the day, you know, I have to live with myself and uh, I'm extremely happy. <laughs> like, I'm just, you know, like there's nothing, there's nothing that the world can take away from me because I already know, you know, who I am and what I'm doing here. And it's, Gosh, it that makes, is. Yeah. Go ahead. It makes life a lot more fun when you have that kind of a foundation. <laughs> that is that is so very impressive. Um, God bless you, Gail. Um, the the lawsuits. Where are they now? Are they still ongoing? Uh yeah. We're we're in the middle of um, recalibrating the complaint. Um, we've been thrown out of court, but that's expected. We'll continue to appeal. I assume you bought the suit in California. No, actually, um, I filed in Florida, which is where we have spent more time than anywhere else in the country. Okay. So it's hard to like nail down a venue because we don't really have a permanent address. Gotcha. But, um, but we spend the winters in Florida, and so it's been, uh, we filed here as well. Well, you might have half a chance in Florida, I feel like. Yeah, we'll see. You know, regardless, I've applied some strategies that um, I don't, there's just no possible way they're going to get around me. <laughs> it's going to take time, but we're going to win. They don't have a case, you know. I, mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I told them in advance you know, I, that, that, that's a big part of this filing those legal documents with them before they fired me, before they even put me on leave, I had filed legal documents. So, um, you know, they don't have a leg to stand on. Like there's just so much evidence that they, uh, violated my contract that, you know, they were trying to force me to participate in an experiment without informed consent that um, they were forcing me to engage in criminal behaviors. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of violations. What kind of reaction did you get from your colleagues at the time? Are you still in touch with any of them? You know, um, so my colleagues that are still at the hospital, they definitely don't really want to have anything to do with me. Um, it's almost like they're afraid that if they associate with me, then um you know something bad will happen to them <laughs> yeah <laughs> guilt, um, guilt by association yeah but, but there's no doubt in your mind that they feel the same way you feel some of them yeah um i think a lot of them are still very closed off to the truth uh i think as time goes on more and more of them are starting to realize that um 
I have been right all along. Mm. And and so that's another big part of this is the moral injury aspect. Of course. You know? What's it going to take for these people to process and, you know, release what they've done? It was very hard for me. And I got out early. Right. I still, you know, right. I still, I know what we were doing in there was wrong. And mm -hmm. I participated. And so I have to come to terms with that, you know, and, and it's hard and it's extremely hard. And I think that that's why most people won't do it because they just don't have the capacity to manage the trauma. Do you miss your job? Um, you know, I was in grad school uh, to become a primary care provider and I was really looking forward to that because I wanted to get more involved in preventative care and wellness. Uh, I think that's another reason why I was one of the people who stood up and said no, because I've always been very um, aware that, uh, you know, I, I felt that the medical care system is kind of based on a sick care system, right? medications to treat symptoms, right? And trying to understand the root cause of the illness in the first place. Right. And I personally uh, believe that our health should be well. You know, we shouldn't have to treat symptoms. We should, you know, get down to the root cause and stop the deficiency. Because really, ultimately, all disease comes down to toxicity and deficiency. So if we correct the toxic, the deficiency and remove the toxicity, you know, we can generally find wellness. And so um, that was really my goal was to go more into the wellness um, community, which I may or may not do. I'm so fired up right now about justice. Um, and, uh, when I, when I finish with all the work that I'm doing, I would also like to help other folks who would like to find justice too, because, um, you know, with all the criminal things happening. So here's part of it. I'm um, I become a associate with an organization called the former Fez Group. I don't know if you know who they are. Of course, of course. I just had Carolyn Blakeman on last week. Yeah, so I went to one of their events, uh, and it was one of the most overwhelming experiences of my life because yeah. of looking into the faces of the victims and their families, and. Um, you know, I went into nursing to save and help people and to then be faced with this truth that not only are we not saving or helping, but we're actually very deeply harming people and their families. Um, so now I've redirected that nursing instinct I have to yeah. heal and help into protecting those who were damaged. So uh, I have an organization that I'm a part of called Stand Firm Now. I don't know if you've heard of, of us, but uh, I have not. we are a um, nonprofit organization uh, set up to gather expert witness testimony because what keeps happening is um, practitioners and patients keep going to court 
and we keep getting thrown out of court because we don't, um, the courts haven't uh, established a fact pattern. Mm. There's all this legal, legal jargon. So you have to have an established fact pattern and you have to have precedence set in order to move forward uh, easily in the courts. And since we have neither with COVID cases, uh, the judges just throw the cases out. So Stanford now is set up to gather expert witness testimony and evidence so that when litigating attorneys end up in front of the judge, they can present thousands of expert witnesses stating that, for instance, the COVID protocols were extraordinarily harmful, right? Or the, um, the vaccines were causing massive amounts of deaths that we were not allowed to report. Mm. You know, all of the things that happened. Uh, so that's what the point of the organization is. We're gathering expert witness testimony to support litigation. And the evidence will go towards any case in um, in the world. So it's it has the potential to change everything. My case will you know, be one of those cases, but um, anyone can use the evidence. This is also very commendable, and I'm I'm really happy that you came by and told us um, about the things that you've been through and about your story. I think there are a lot of people that are going to find the courage to do the right thing after listening to you. So thank you again for taking the time. Um, please let the folks have, know how they can keep up with you. Do you have social media accounts and the like? Yeah, I'm on Twitter under my name, Gail McRae. I don't know how long I'll stay on there. I have very mixed feelings about social media. <laughs> Same. <laughs> but um, my, my, our website, standfirmnow.org, uh, anyone can contact me through the website. Thank you, Gail. Thank you. Thank you for coming by. And thank you for doing all that you've done and, and that you continue to do. It's our children's future that I'm most concerned with because, you know, one day I'm going to be gone, but. What are we leaving to them? That's why I'm here doing this. What are we leaving? That's exactly right. Come back.